Morning. Morning. I love communion. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, but uh, before we do, let's, uh, let's talk about some administrative things that kind of lead us into that. You know, I've said before to some of you that uh, I'm getting hand signals from the back. I'm pretty adept at that. That uh, a couple of characters in Scripture are, are my favorite. David, because he gives me great encouragement that God could call him somebody after his own heart in spite of all the things that took place in his life. You know, David was an adulterer, David was a murderer, and he had a uh, pretty messed up family. But it was the line of Christ coming from David. And then Peter, we'll look at Peter a little bit this morning. Remember, Peter's the one that, uh, when I look at Peter, my label for him in the past has been, Peter's the uh, ready, fire, aim person. Always jumping to do something, even if it's not quite the right thing. Jumps out of the boat, walks on the water, starts sinking. Says to the Lord, I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to deny you. And then he does. At odds with Paul over who to eat with. Remember that? Decides, even though he's taking the message to the Gentiles, decides that he's not going to eat with the Gentiles when his Jewish brethren are in town, and Paul takes them to task for us, which gives us great hope because we can disagree and do it the right way, as Peter and Paul did, and came back together. So, Peter this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, during this time of writing with Peter, uh, the spread of the gospel was taking place. And we often look at life and things taking place in life and, and somehow think, all of our life needs to be predictable and good and, and just pleasant. And that's not what's happening here. And it certainly it's not happen, doesn't happen with us either, does it? You know, we're not promised that everything will be good. We're promised that everything will work out for good. So in Peter's time, remember the persecution was taking place. And the result of persecution was what? The spread of the gospel. Excuse me. Believers were forced from their homes to take the gospel all over the world. You know, there are findings in Spain, findings in England. And I remember studying one time uh, the gospel even probably taken to China, the gospel taken to India. I did some business in India about uh, 30 years ago and, and worked with a man who was from the city of Goa in the southwest corner of India. And Goa is a Christian city. It's about all that's left in India that's Christian. But if you go to Goa, a lot of the stores have the name Thomas in their labels because that's where they believe the Apostle Thomas took the gospel. So this is what's taking place during the time of Peter's writing. All these things taking place within the church. Persecutions, the spread of the gospel throughout all uh, the known world at that time. So read along with me as I read from 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. By November of 1978, Diane and I had been a Marine Corps family for about 11 years, and uh, been through a number of different training facilities. I'd gone from being a uh, a young private to a staff sergeant to a, a second lieutenant, went on to flight training. And in November 78, we were flying westbound uh, to island hop across the Pacific to meet our aircraft carrier at uh, QB Point in the Philippines. So I would be gone from uh, four 
or sons who were who were a year and a half. Got to get these dates right. Year and a half to eight, and uh, Diana was in charge of all four sons. That was the way of military families in those days, and still is. But she got to come over in late March, which was uh, the timing of our wedding anniversary. And uh, she left early April. And on the morning of the 5th of April, I don't know if you know this uh, geographically, but there's an area called the Straits of Malacca, which is between Singapore, Malaysia, Singapore's off the end of Malaysia, and Sumatra. And it's shaped like a funnel. It's about 50 miles wide at the southeast and about 150 miles wide at the northwest, 500 miles long. And early that morning, the USS Ranger was proceeding through, headed to the Indian Ocean, and ended up striking a Liberian tanker because of a miscommunication. There were two officers on the deck at the time, the officer of the deck and a navigator, and neither one could agree when they saw the ship converging on them could agree what the right action was. So they were frozen into inaction and uh, hit the Liberian tanker amidships. I remember I've still got a picture somewhere at home on my scrapbook because they, they limped back to Subic Bay, which is where we were, and uh, there was a big bite out of the front of the uh, aircraft carrier. But uh, we were sent to take its place and spent about two months uh, circling around in the Indian Ocean. But those two officers were just frozen, didn't know what decision to make, didn't make a decision, and therefore the collision took place. And I want you to realize today that God's calling to us is certain and it's eternal. God's calling is certain and it's eternal. And from this chapter in 1 Peter, we're going to look at three callings. Calling to salvation, a calling to holiness, and a calling to love. First of all, salvation. <clears throat> Peter's message was to dispersed believers. Now, Jewish believers may have been involved, but it's generally thought to be dispersed Gentile believers in the different places that, that he enumerates there. And on uh, the first part of chapter 1 in verse 3, it focuses first on mercy. So when it comes to salvation, it's mercy that's important to us. And we've said before that the definition of grace and mercy, grace is, I get what I don't deserve. I get what I don't deserve. And mercy is, I don't get what I do deserve. So God's mercy means that in my salvation, I don't get the punishment that is mine because of my sin. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 something very important. When I read this, watch for two words, because these are two words that are really important when you go through Scripture. They mean quite a bit. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. These are the two words. But God, and we can go through all that, and then we come to, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So reading what Paul says in other parts of Scripture, you might think that all of a sudden you brought something to the decision. There was some merit involved somehow. That's not the case according to Scripture. It was all God. God chose you before the foundation of the world and opened your eyes to the gospel at the time that he had set up. And then in Psalm 130, this is what the psalmist says. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Second aspect of salvation in verse 4 is that it's inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Our salvation isn't going to change, and more importantly than that, you're never going to lose it. You're never going to lose your salvation. So you've been redeemed and held by God eternally, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Then our salvation in verse 9, we're saved from wrath. Christ's blood covers us. So in terms of sin, when God looks at you and me, he sees the blood of Christ. And that's called Christ's righteousness imputed to us. And what we're saved from, we've talked about before up here, is we're saved from the punishment that we're due, that included God's wrath. And Christ took that all upon himself. So salvation brings a guarantee of eternal life, no merit required on your part, and God's wrath is satisfied. And finally, in verse 12, the other aspect of salvation is the seal of our salvation is the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus, when he was talking to the disciples, said, I need to go away, because when I go away, I'm going to send another comforter. And I know I've used this description before, but I love it, because it says to to me something that I can really understand, and that's that the words in Greek for another comforter is like, you've lost your favorite object. And somebody says, here, I'm going to give you that object, and it's just like the one you lost. So in this case, Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to send a comforter, the Holy Spirit, who's just like me. He's going to minister to you. We know from Scripture he's going to help you understand Scripture. He's going to pray for you when you don't know how to pray. All these things were a promise that we have as believers. And it's the sign and seal of our guaranteed salvation. Martin Luther, if you remember anything about Luther, was a troubled man when it came to sin. They used to say that uh, when he would go towards the confessional, his confessor would kind of start trembling because he knew he was in for a long haul with Luther because he would, uh, he would go over everything I could think of in his mind that might be a sin and then walk out of the confessional and then head back because he thought maybe he'd forgotten something. So it was really a terrible, terrible time for Luther to struggle over that until the day we know about when he came face to face with righteousness, according to the book of Romans.
Now, you know, when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, it wasn't his intent to split from the Catholic Church. It was his intent to have a discussion, to have an argument in a sense, in a good sense, when it came to debate about these aspects that he was struggling with. But that wasn't the result, the, uh, obviously, the Lord had in mind. What Luther was faced with in Romans 1 was verse 17 that said, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And it's that righteousness that all of a sudden God used in Luther's life to bring him to faith when he finally understood what it was saying. And then Romans 6.11 talks to us about salvation also. So it says, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And because of our salvation, uh, one of my favorite verses is Romans 8.1. Uh, no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, later in that chapter, it goes through this whole litany of things that can't separate us from the love of God. And at the end it says, and just in case I forgot something, anything else in the world. So it's just a fantastic chapter to read, to be encouraged by when it comes to what our salvation means. How many of you are fans of C.S. Lewis? There's a great passage that uh, an acquaintance of mine, Dr. Lig Duncan, who's a chancellor at Reformed Theological Seminary, talks about. And it's when Jill is going through the forest and comes to the only stream in Narnia. And there she sees Aslan. And she says to Aslan, for those of you who don't know, Aslan, of course, is a type of Christ, massive lion. So Jill says to Aslan, do you eat little girls? And Aslan looks at her and says, I've eaten kingdoms. I've eaten all sorts of people. Why do you ask? Well, because I'm afraid. I don't want you to eat me. I want to get to this stream. And she said, I may have to go find another stream. And Aslan says, little girl, there is no other stream. So Christ is the only stream for us and salvation. Our salvation brings us to continuous sanctification as we are conformed to the image of Christ. A number of things in Scripture like salvation, sanctification. Sanctification is past, present, and future. So when we become believers, we're sanctified or set apart. And then there's a process now for you and me when we're growing and we're changing and we're maturing. So that's an ongoing process and that ultimately we will be sanctified when we die and go to heaven or when Christ comes back. There's that ultimate future sanctification. So let's talk about the calling to holiness now and sanctification. Peter reminds us in chapter 4 we need to be holy in our conduct 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous 
is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You know, one thing this says is, is if you and I interact with people in the world, if you and I share the gospel with people in the world, we need to do it, uh, I don't know if the real word we want to use is winsomely, but we need to do it without poking them in the eye. If it's the gospel that offends somebody, I'm okay with that because they will be offended by the gospel. But if I offend them because of the way I come across to them, then I say that's not okay. We need to be careful when we deal with the world in sharing the gospel that we actually show them Christ and what Christ can be to them. And then secondly, in verse 19, without spot or blemish, just a reminder to us, I think, when it comes to holiness, that the Old Testament is a shadow of what takes place in the New Testament. We've talked before, I know, from time to time with uh, different people about Old to New Testament. And I think I've said before, when I grew up, it was pretty much all the New Testament. Old Testament was for those people over there, probably more liturgical churches. We can't really understand it. You know how that is. And the New Testament is simpler in a lot of ways to read. But the Old Testament is so rich when you read it in terms of the threat of redemption in Scripture. We're in Exodus now. What's the overarching theme of Exodus? But redemption. The people are being redeemed. And that leads us into the New Testament. And the focus is redemption now and salvation and growth. So having a place in the Old Testament is important. So the Old Testament sacrifices were a shadow of Christ's ultimate sacrifice. Because the member of the Lamb had to be without spot or blemish. And certainly that was Christ. And what helps us in our holiness I think one of the key things that helps us, or can help us, is understanding what it is we need to do as we march toward holiness. Paul in Ephesians talks about the armor of God, and those are key features of our lives as believers. He talks about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Lord, and in caps at the end here, praying, praying. And that can be a challenge for any of us at times, I think, to have consistent prayer and study. But the armor of God is what moves us towards holiness and protect us as we're faced with choices that don't honor or please him. The trials that uh, we talked about earlier are difficulties often and, uh, and challenges. You may, you may have had challenges already in your life. You may have lost loved ones. It becomes a trial. You may have lost jobs that becomes a trial. You may have made choices that were wrong that are part of that trial. They were your choices. But as you come back to God, it's something that's refining. And it's a reminder of what we said earlier, that, that we're not promised good things. We're promised they'll all work together for good. And the refining process is what moves us closer and closer to the image of Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5 as Paul talks about this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The refining fire of our trials. William Carey was considered the father of missions and lived from the late 1700s into the early 1800s. He was an English, uh, actually he wasn't a pastor or a missionary initially, he was just, uh, he was working a job and had a penchant for preaching. So he was given some opportunities in a church and ultimately he ended up going to uh, India, setting up uh, schools and seminaries and and he had an amazing uh, gift of languages. So even before he left, he learned a lot of European languages. And when he got there, he learned probably five or six dialects of the Indian languages and began translating the Bible into languages that had never been translated into before. So, so a key person. But I remember when he had a seminary, the story talked about him having a seminary in a school that uh, caught fire. And it destroyed 10 years of language translation he had worked on, all of his presses, all of his buildings. Uh, and he was devastated. And then when word got to England and to the people who knew him, the interest and the funds started flowing in to rebuild. So it was that refining fire, literally, for him that took place, the changes that took place that, that brought him closer to Christ through it, initially seeing everything devastated and then seeing it come back in a greater way with those people who then came over also to help him. I think an important sign of our sanctification, our holiness, is the love we show. And that can be certainly within our families, but also within our community and within our local body and outside this body to other believers. And it's something that... It's spirit-empowered. You can't do it on your own, or you can't do it very consistently on your own, has been my experience, because things tend to intrude, don't they, on being consistent. But when it's Holy Spirit-driven, our moving toward being called out to love, then it's something that's more consistent and is a firmer foundation. Peter says this in a couple of chapters later in 1 Peter 3. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good that should be God's will than for doing evil. And certainly the test of the way we love, isn't it what happens to us at times? Because we can just be kind of motoring along and, and sharing love with people and things are going well. And when they don't go well, that's when the test really takes place. And sometimes we'll fail. We won't do it right. But that's part of learning also. I think one of the great things about God's grace is he's gracious towards us in our failures. He's that perfect father. And if you had challenges growing up with your father, oftentimes it's hard to look at God and see him in a way that's different than the challenges you had. But God is certainly the perfect father. He deals with us in love. He deals with us in grace. When we fall, he picks us up. He may chastise us. There's a whole range of things that can take place. But 
God is too often seen as that mean taskmaster over us. And that's not the picture in Scripture at all. God's a God of grace. God's a God of mercy. He'll put us in difficult situations, and that's part of the process too. We need to make sure we love earnestly. And earnestly, in this chapter, translates as fervently. So it needs to be some action we take. And the church, in part, is identified by the love that is evident with the people in the church. Francis Schaeber had a great book where he talked about that, The Mark of the Church, and certainly the love among believers in the church. So like I said earlier with Peter and Paul, when we disagree about things, and certainly that's happened if you've been to enough business meetings, you know, where people don't quite see, quite see things the same way, but we still get along, even as we don't necessarily see everything the same way. And that's the great aspect, I think, of being called to love and the changes that are taking place and the way the church is identified. It's how we interact with each other with love and respect. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 about that, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So it's like thinking about family sometimes. You ever, maybe not you, but you look at somebody else and go, man, how did they end up in that family? Uh, or maybe it is you saying, how did I end up in this family? But like it or not, we're in the same family. And it is important for us to look at ways to get along together, you know, to express that love, to draw closer together. Not that it'll be perfect with everybody, because there are some people like me who are just hard to get along with, but at least you'll find other people out there who you can draw, who you can draw closer to. John says in John 15, greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And the picture is, of course, the ultimate picture is Christ. Christ didn't come to bring the gospel to healthy men and women. It was the gospel to men and women who were dying spiritually and needed to hear the gospel. And then new life enables us to love properly. Love is self-sacrificial. Think about if you remember the uh, story of David and Jonathan. You remember that great story of, of their closeness as friends? And when, and when Saul is getting pretty close to, to getting David, Jonathan says, look, and it's the whole story about the arrow. I'll shoot an arrow out here and I'll have some words I'll say and you know it's time to it's time to get out of here. So Jonathan put his life on the line because Saul wouldn't have thought twice about killing Jonathan. Saul didn't find David. David followed the Lord's leading and even let Saul live on more than one occasion. Self-sacrificial. Our love is self-sacrificial. Then for a reminder out of Hebrews 10, you remember it says, spur one another to love and good deeds. So that's our calling too within the congregation or within our homes for sure. We need to find things that move the other person to love and good deeds. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a uh, pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church from 1927 to about 1960. Passed away uh, when he was still pastoring the church. 
in his early years, he had four children, and his wife passed away in her late 30s from, from uh, cancer. So on the way to the funeral with four kids, Barnhouse is trying to figure out some way to talk to the kids about what they're coming to and what took place. So just as they're on the way to the funeral, a truck passes them, a big semi. Shadow of the truck passes over the car. And Barnhouse thought, okay, and says to his kids, so would you rather be run over by the shadow of the truck or the truck? And his quick-thinking 11-year-old says, why, the shadow, of course. And he says, that's what happened to your mother. She was run over by the shadow of death. But Christ took on all of death for us. What an amazing story it is. Now, I want you to think about this in the week ahead. First on salvation. Our lives need to show our salvation, and our works show our salvation. So before Christ, remember, our works are all filthy rags. Now they become something which speaks to our salvation. So those things you do need to speak to that salvation as you reach out to other people, as you share with other people, whether it's time, whether it's funds, whether it's possessions, some way. I'm reminded of what Tim Keller said, too. He said, uh, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine, and you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope at the same time. So your sin, even your sin as a believer, doesn't change God's love for you today. Holiness. Remember, it's sanctification past, present, and future. Even when we fail to read, pray, have family devotions, I know these are all struggles. They were struggles for me. But we come back to those things that are good, that we know are good for us as believers and are good for our family. So we come back to spending time praying. We come back to spending time reading. We come back to spending time with family devotions. And we may do it, obviously, more than on one occasion, come, coming back. Those things build us up and they build up our families. We need to come back to them, model them, albeit imperfectly. And finally, love. The mark of the church, even when we disagree, it needs to be love. And we're given a lot of latitude as believers through Scripture. There's so much liberty in the Christian life, but our liberty, in my view, has limits. So we need to be careful that our liberty doesn't take us into a place where it's offensive to somebody else. Because there aren't many things that I do with my liberties that I don't have to do. I can easily stop doing them for somebody else's sake. So that's where our love can take us. They can take us to the point of foregoing things that we believe are liberties for the sake of a brother, for the sake of a sister, for the sake of others. And love is that also, that cold water in Jesus' name. So as you reach out to other people, other organizations, be willing to show your love to them through the time you might give, through your finances, whatever it is. But take love to other people and make love the mark of your family and the mark of this church. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your time.